Play shooters. It's that time again. That time again. These guys aren't just anybody. They're good. It's time for the Dead Pair Podcast with Jason Rambo. Is your brain hear what your mouth is saying? And Sean Alley. He's large and in charge. Here to bring you all things sporting plays from the ins and outs tips and tricks, news and gossip from pro shooters, service and industry specialists, coaches, clubs, and more. Often imitated, never duplicated. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only... Welcome everyone to the Dead Pair Podcast. Yeah, the Dead Pair Podcast, energized by KOMO Game Board U.S., What's up, Mr. Large and Ugly in Charge? I'm ready to move somewhere warmer. I'm tired of this crap. <laughs> well, as everybody's hearing this. Yeah, the uh, Caribbean Cup's going on, right? Caribbean Club down at Vero Beach is going on. Yep. Should be really nice down there. Yes. Wish I was there. Mm-hmm. But, hey, next week's the Jack, Link, Jack Link's Cup, so. Yep, and we will be there for that. We will be there for that. So Just got to suffer through a little while longer, Jason. <sighs> yes. Are you ready for the profit? To be on, yeah, right. they don't they don't get much bigger than this, do they? No. So no. when it comes to sporting clays in the United States, if you don't know the name Anthony Matteris Jr., you've been you, living under a rock, big rock. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now this uh, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, and this is the first time we've had Anthony on by himself, other than questions for the coaches. The last time we had him on with the uh, no, he's never even been on for that. Well, the Titans debate with David, the Titans debate. Yeah, yeah he was on with uh, David and him, and uh, but this is you know. His time and his time alone. His time to shine. Yeah, we got some good questions for him too. Um, I I hope he, I hope he's in the mood to gab because just like, well, should I go ahead and tell the funny story about the Nationals? Sure, go ahead. So Sean and I went to the first time attendee luncheon up on the hill at the house, and uh, lo and behold, Anthony sat across the table from us, and uh, he was talking. He had stopped to take a bite of his sandwich or something, and Sean looked at me and said, well, you about ready to go? And I'm like, as long as that man's talking, I'm not moving. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I mean, the guy's just, I mean, every word that comes out of his mouth is just pure gold. Yeah, he's a a vault of knowledge of of the sport. For sure. So, hey, let's let's get to Anthony. Uh, We got some segments lined up for you guys afterwards. Make sure you stick around from them. Um, We've got some really cool segments lined up, too. So, without further ado, let's get Anthony Matteris on the phone. Right on. All right, joining us, the one, the only, Anthony Matteris Jr. Anthony, how you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. How's things uh, been treating you up there north? Good. I uh, can't complain. You know, winter uh, kind of kicked in the last couple of weeks. It's been uh, a little bit of snow and some cold days, but uh, it is January, so. Yeah, for us. Uh, that's kind of what we'd expect. Yeah, for us that live up in the northern hemisphere, this is what we got to deal with through these months. So <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, Anthony, we never really got a chance to dive into, you know, questions specific to you when we had you and uh, David on for the Titans debate. So we kind of wanted to gear some of the questions to you specifically. Come to understand you've been holding some target setting classes and some mental training seminars. Can you tell us a little bit about those and – what someone attending can expect from one of those classes? Yeah, so um, I'll start with my target setting class. My target setting class is a two-day class. I generally host it one time per year. Uh, sometimes a couple of years I've done it tw- twice in the year, but generally once per year. And I host it uh, generally at the end of the season, say like December. We have a tournament in December, and I always host it right the Monday and Tuesday following that tournament because I've got a full course that we just set up and uh, for the tournament as an example, and we do a 50 bird five stand, a 50 bird feet test. So I've kind of got all that out there to, you know, to get out there with the guys in the field and look at that stuff as an example. So it's a two day class. It's it's uh, Monday and a Tuesday. The, the class is taught from the perspective of, you know, if you're going to be an actual real target setter in some capacity, whether it's, uh, set targets at a local club, help your buddy set targets for a, you know, for a sportsman's club or, a you know, like a nonprofit club or set targets, uh, at a big tournament. You know, it's kind of, it's from the perspective of, uh, the, for a target setter. 
Um, so the question I always get is, you know, what if I'm not really a target setter, but I would like to know more about it? Should I take the class? My answer is always the same. You're going to learn things that you don't necessarily need if you're just taking it from this perspective of a shooter. Um, but it's not, you're, you're going to learn more than you need to know. Right. So the, the, you'll learn a lot about reading targets and understanding, et cetera, but it's not a target reading class. It's a target setting class and understanding your equipment and capabilities and what's going on and distances and speeds and stuff like that. Gotcha. So generally what ends up happening is about 25% of the people that are in the class are like full-time. This is their full-time job. They work at a range and part of their job is resetting the course and setting up monthly shoots or registered shoots or even some bigger shoots. Um, so that's probably 25% of the, of the, of the students are real, really work in the industry as, as capacity of having them work out on the range and set targets, you know, as their full-time job. Right. Um, probably 50% of the class set targets, uh, but not necessarily as their full-time job, meaning they set targets with their own machines they help out their buddy who works at a range or they help out the, the local sportsman's club or the kind of the, the nonprofit club that, you know, shoots on Wednesdays and Sunday mornings and they got a five stand set up or something on some ski and trap fields. So that's probably about 50% of the students are going to do something with machines and setting up something, whether it's for personal use or helping, helping out, but they're pro it's not necessarily their, their full-time job. And then 25% of the people probably never even will set a target. They just are shooters that want to learn more about it and understand, you know, be, be more engaged in what exactly is happening out there from the target setting to the operation of the tournament, et cetera. So the class kind of covers A to Z all the way through the target setting to, you know, the flow of the course, et cetera. So, the flow of the course isn't necessarily important for some guy setting targets to uh, practice or train or something like that, but it's it, it's a it's a very comprehensive class. And Anthony, do you get a lot of demand for that? I mean, I know you only do it once a year. I mean, does it seem like that's enough? Or do, yeah, do I, for, I mean, I, I generally take as many as ten. My brother does it with me, so he helps me. So we've got kind of two of us out there, and sometimes we'll split up a little bit, and he'll be talking to a group, and I'll be talking to a group. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I almost fill it every year. Uh, so I take ten to twelve at the absolute most, and I generally always have eight to eight to twelve people in in the class. Okay, gotcha. And then the rest of it is the mental training. Uh, how many times do you do that each year? Uh, I, I had I had done a I had done a class historically. Um, I haven't I just did one uh, in December, and then I've got one that's actually coming Sunday. And before that, I hadn't done it since prior to COVID. Just you know, getting people in a it's a classroom thing getting all the people in indoors and sitting together to, to listen. I haven't, so I haven't really done it in this one that I did this past December was the first one I'd done in about two years. Um, and I changed the format since then. Uh, the format that I'm doing now is it's a little bit longer class, slightly longer class. And I've kind of changed my teaching of it since, since three, two or three years ago. So, it's kind of, uh, you know, when you when you use the topic mental game, it's obviously a broad, it's a broad, broad, broad term, right? Sure. Right. And everybody's interpretation of what that means is different. So what I've tried to do now with it is be very comprehensive to get people really understanding, you know, what is it that we're actually at? Why are you here? You know, so you're kind of here because you you think you're missing a part of your game that's not related to your ability to hit the target. It's related to your ability to consistently get the performance that you'd like when it counts. Right. Gotcha. So then, so that be kind of comes a little bit of the, that becomes kind of the topic of the class, you know, and we'll ask some questions. And first thing I always do in the beginning of class, I write everybody's, what do you want to, you know, 
here's some things that I have on the agenda. What do you, what good questions do you have? Right. That is the reason that you're here. We kind of write them all down, you know, and then by the time I get through the whole class, we kind of then go back to the board and look at the questions and, you know, we've answered most of them, but we'll just kind of reiterate, you know, how we answered that or, or why the person's question was much more potentially much more complex than what seems like a simple question. So uh, I do that. I do that class right now. I've had it one in December and one in January. And then I'll host it again throughout the season. I just haven't, haven't picked the dates yet, but I'll probably do it. Uh, probably do it in the fall. Probably won't do it this spring. I'll probably do it again in the fall. Okay. So what about your regular lessons, Anthony? Is that calendar looking to open up soon or you still got that locked down right now? No, I have everything opened up. Uh, I'm actually probably about my whole spring is about booked, and I probably have filled my fall, my fall and winter probably about eighty percent. Okay. All right. Wow, that's incredible. That keeps you pretty busy throughout the year. Sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I take a little. I take a little time off in the summer and uh, do some fishing. So I don't, I don't schedule much. I don't schedule a whole lot in July or August mm-hmm. schedule. Some of my regulars that come, uh, you know, I have some, I have a big base of people that come every, every, from every four weeks to every eight weeks. So I schedule a few of those folks through the summer just to keep them on the schedule that, that they like. And then, uh, but I'm, once I get to like September, September through June, I pretty much will work six or seven days a week that whole time. Jeez. Gotcha. Well, Anthony, since you're up here in the frozen Northeast, like we are, uh, let's dive in a little bit to things that shooters can do through the winter, uh, that they can, you know, things they can do to train indoors or maybe not be outside. I know that being outside and training on a real course is ideal, but what are some of the things that other shooters can do when the weather's really nasty that they can work on, uh, indoors to help their shooting? I mean, doing some different types of gun mount, whether, you know, you're practicing, you know, there's a few things within gun mount, you know, if you're practicing something for like for feet pass, you know, there's obviously different opinions on how you mount a gun, et cetera. Um, so if you're, if you're, if you're a pre-mounted mainly shooter or pre-mounted in the pocket with your head out, you don't really have anything to practice. So gotcha. practicing gun mount is basically irrelevant because you don't have one. Um, you know, I shoot out of my pocket slightly and get the gun down further, depending on how much time I have. And then obviously, uh, down for feet I don't really practice my mount a lot because I've done it for forever. Um, I practiced that at one point in my game, but I suggest if somebody is learning their gun mount, what I, what I suggest when you're talking about learning your gun mount is, figure out exactly how it is that you're mounting the gun, you know, so I'm not going to necessarily get into all the details of that because it's a little bit hard to explain just through, sure. through, uh, you know, hearing it, uh, without having somebody there to help you or, or watch a video or something like that. So you have an example, but figure out what you think is important for you to mount the gun and how that's going to work with your hands moving together in sync or your front hand first or whatever you think is the best best style okay mm-hmm. uh one thing that's really important with the gun mount just while we're talking about is head position so where your head is when you when you if, if you're going to take the shot and your balance point between your feet and where your head is if you're going to take the shot your head should basically and your and your balance for your feet and your stance should be at that same point before you start mounting i think that's probably one of the biggest m- mess ups with mounting Um, they're talking about something that people can do, but then what I suggest that they do is go online and watch videos of the very best people, you know, so like Nick Barry has all kinds of stuff on YouTube that he's posted over the years. He's got hours of footage of, of, of really good shooters. What I always say is watch all that, figure out what they're doing, give yourself some examples and then video yourself, set your phone up on the other side of the room on a couple of different angles so you can see what you look like, gotcha. you know, uh, my, my suggestion for people is you don't, you do not have to look like any one person. Um, but you have to fit within the, 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 the large group. So if you watch 
10 really good shooters that are shooting with a gun out either in a feet pass mount or unmounted slightly. You watch 10 really good shooters and you video yourself and you fit within that 10, you know, then you're probably doing okay. If you have something that sticks out and looks drastically different where you would not classify yourself as fitting in the group, then you got to keep working on it or, or make an adjustment to whatever the difference is. Right. So, Anthony, when someone can get out to a club with limited time due to weather, I mean, what do you recommend they work on? I know that's a very individualistic thing, um, but how do you recommend as a broad someone spend their time? Uh, I'm a firm believer in you need to practice right at your edge of confidence, meaning like uh, the targets that scare you just a little bit where you could miss, miss one. Um, but you feel like you're pretty comfortable hitting the bird. So I'm a firm believer in a lot of people practice birds that are too hard and too easy, you know, meaning they go through the whole course and they shoot the station. If they kill six birds or eight birds, they just move on. If they kill five out of six at a station, they do a couple more pairs till they, till they hit it a couple in a row and then they move on and then they get to a really hard one. And they, you know, really hard when they shoot a bunch. Um, where my suggestion would be skip the really easy one, the one that's really easy to hit six, mm-hmm. and skip the really hard one, the one that you only got two out of six, and spend the majority of your time on the stations that it's easy for you to. It's easy for you to get five out of six and seven out of eight, but it's not easy for you to kill twenty in a row. Gotcha. You know, so I think that if you think about what people say, it's related to our mental game. Even people say all the time, well, I got a lot of five out of sixes and a lot of seven out of eights, you know? Well, a lot of times what that is, is that bird is right there at your comfort zone where you're, you're not a hundred percent confident or you have some technical flaw in your game for that bird. And you got five out of six because that's really what your ability is on that bird. Okay. Gotcha. It might, might not be so much that you just definitely had a mental error. You know, people make the assumption that if you got five out of six, that you should have been able to get six. Well, I make the assumption sometimes when I watch someone get that five out of six that they're that they're really lucky they didn't get four. Okay. Right. Yeah. Four out of six. You know, so that's the station that you need to that's the type of station that you need to spend the most time on, you know, with a variety of angles and speeds and distances you know that type of difficulty in which the one you know the target that one person might style of target or type of target that one person might lack a little bit of that proficiency and therefore confidence might be different than the next guy so you would want to cover all the types of shots within that within that type of uh that type of target that you you feel it's easy for you to get that five out of six, but not always easy for you to get six out of six. So on that five out of six, Anthony, you think something in that realm, they should be getting 10 out of 10 in practice. Does that make sense? When yeah, I mean, probably more. Really? You know? Okay. Yeah, because look, you know, what I always say is this. What makes you think, what makes you think that, if you can kill six out of six in practice that you can kill six out of six in competition. Right. Right. Because you've added an element of, of, uh, of element of pressure and everything else that might go with that. Right. Right. Your heart's, your heart's, your heart's beating a little bit different. You feel a little bit different, get a little bit of adrenaline going. So the reality is you probably to, to know with certainty that you can hit six out of six when it counts, you probably got to be able to hit closer to, you know, 15 out of 15 or, or 20 out of 20. Wow. Gotcha. You know, so that's the point of, that's the reason why people are, that's the reason why they're on difficulty levels that are too high. Okay. Is because they've already advanced themselves to the next level of difficulty, but they haven't truly, they don't have any mastery, you know, by my definition. Right. So, it's not a race. You do what you can, you know? So what that means is you might shoot less stations and you master the birds that you master the birds that are a little bit easier. 
And if you shot less stations that day, but you be, you left those stands with more confidence. And we got to remember too, is if you're working to kill 10 out of 10 or 15 out of 15 or 20 out of 20 or whatever it is, what's also going to show up is a technical error. Okay. So a technical error, like gun speed being out of sync, just doing something wrong with your mechanics might not show up in six targets. Okay. I you know, see where your you're going pattern, right yeah. Your pattern covers enough large enough area that it hides your mistakes. Okay. So but if your sample set is big enough, the probability catches up with you and it doesn't cover your mistakes. Okay. Wow, I'll never so realize that they're there. Yeah, kind of discover if you have a weakness or not there. Yeah, I've never right. heard it explained like that. That's awesome. Well, uh, with me and Jason being fairly new to the sport, you know, we're getting into the whole groove of, hey, this time of year we want to go down south and shoot. And I know a lot of other shooters look forward to going down to Florida and Georgia, Texas, other places like that. Um, the guys that live and, and shoot down there obviously have the advantage. Do you have any tips or suggestions for us northern shooters before we head down and start – you know, competing in things like the Gator Cup, the the Jack Links tournament, the Caribbean uh, Classic, that kind of stuff uh, for us guys up in the cold weather. Yeah, I mean, look, there's no there's no trick. Um, you you have to get out and shoot when you can on a day that's reasonable. Gotcha. Uh, if you're out there on a day that you don't want to be out there, it's probably not a good idea because you're not you're not really into it. You know, you want to be doing more than just going through the motions. Right. So, you know, you pick a good day, you wear some layers, you know, shoot, shoot as much as you can when you can, you know, to try to get prepared. I don't shoot a ton this time of year. I've only shot two times since the national championship. Um, both of those times were recently in the last couple of weeks, just trying to get, get a little bit of rust off before I go to Florida in the middle of February. I, I don't think there's really any, any, any huge tip or, or a thing that you need to do, uh, I'd say when you get there, you know, get, get some shooting in, you know, practice a little bit when you get there and sign up for as many different preliminaries and stuff like that as you can to get a little bit of, you know, uh, experience back, you know, under your belt in front of you before you, before you get to the main event. So, I mean, I think it's all just, a, a, you do the best that you can with, with the cards that you're dealt, you know, so. Gotcha. Bundle up and get out there. All right. <laughs> Well, let's change gears a little bit. So uh, we've seen a lot of influx of new shooters to the sport, uh, especially with, uh, I think, the SCTP had a record-breaking attendance up here at the Cardinal Center, and also the Nationals down in Texas. I mean, there's a lot more shooters coming in. Uh, I think they also broke the record for uh, most first-time attendees at the Nationals. Any ideas why we're seeing this influx of shooters now? I mean, do you think this trend's going to continue? Um. I mean, there's always there's always growth. It seems like in clay target shooting, growth in competitive shooting, I'd say is you know not nearly as high as the growth in in uh, in just regular clay target shooting. Okay, it's hard to say. I mean, with COVID, I think we had more people shooting and getting outdoors and trying different outdoor recreation. You know, so we probably get a little bit of a trickle trickle down effect that you know, some of those people that started two years ago to be slightly more avid are now at a point where they might enter some competitions. I just talked to a gentleman that said he been a casual shooter for 30 years. And when the pandemic hit, he started going shooting every week. And, um, you know, now he's doing tournaments. He just did his third tournament the other day. He wouldn't have got into competitive shooting unless the, unless the pandemic hit because he would have never became more avid. I mean, do you see that as kind of a natural path? I mean, somebody gets into sporting clays and they go out with their buddies on the weekends, you know, once or twice a month and they have so much fun that they actually just naturally progress to competitive. Yeah, shooting? It's a very small percentage though. I would say that if you took the Nate, I don't know what the, the percentage would be, but it's, it's, it's probably less than 1%. Okay. Of people that shoot recreationally, shoot competitively. Um, you know, I could tell you that if I took all the recreational shooters that came through my range in a given year, it's a very, very small number shoot competitively. Um, you know, we we market to those people. They're right there. And 
see the flyers hanging on the board for the tournaments, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's just not, it's you, you have to be a competitor, you know, that you want to compete. Um, other people look at it and go, I can shoot in a competition and it costs, you know, 120 bucks for a hundred birds. I could just shoot today for, for 40, for 42. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess. So I guess, you know, and if the competition part doesn't drive them, then they're not going to do it. You know? So, it is fun and you get out there and you meet people and you, you know, there's a lot of entertainment around it, but the person has to make the first step to to decide that they're going to get there. So I think that it's just a percentage. It's a fraction, mm-hmm. you know, always, you know, the question that everyone always asks is what do we need to do to get more people in the sport? Well, we don't really have any problem with people in the sport. There's plenty of people in the sport we could use more growth in, in competitive shooting. The example I always give is, you know, do you know anybody that goes bass fishing or goes fishing for perch or crappie or whatever it might be, you know, in your area, people always go, Oh yeah, definitely. You know, friends of mine fish, mm-hmm. you know, or, or friends of mine hunt or friends of mine, you know, uh, have a hunting dog or whatever. Right. Yep. You know, or friends of mine golf, how many people, how many, how many of your friends that do all those different activities do those activities competitively? Right. Right. No, I understand I, that completely. You know, there's a lot of people that golf that never been in a golf tournament. There's a lot of people that have a dog that they take hunting and then they never entered a dog in a, in a hunting hunt trial. You know, there's people that fish and they never, they never entered a fishing tournament, you know? So yeah, uh, I think it's just a percentage and I don't think that you, I don't think that no matter what you do, that you change that percentage much. Gotcha. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a, there's people that walk in our door and come recreational shooting for the first time. And three months later, they're in competitions. Right. There's people that have walked in our door for 25 years and they've never entered a competition. Just depends on the person, basically. Depends on the person. Gotcha. So this is a very broad question, Anthony, and I'm, I understand you can give me a broad answer, but that's okay. Um, I just want your opinion on this. What's your take on sporting clays as a whole in the United States right now? Do you think we're in a good spot? Do you think we need to change? Do you think we need to improve? What's your take on it? I mean, the sporting clays in the United States for the for the uh, industry as a whole related to you know, people that are coming out to shoot and ranges. I mean, we have the best ranges in the world for sure. Um, we have the most participation in the world. We have the best competitions in the world. I mean, all around, I think we're the sporting plays is in a really good position. You know, the, the kicker right now is the ammo. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily the, it's not necessarily the, the availability, you know, availability was one problem. It's, it's availability and price. Right. Uh, price has definitely, has definitely slowed down the number of targets thrown throughout the country. You know, you're always going to have a range that says we're throwing more than we ever have. That's fine. But White Flyer, you know, it was way off on targets thrown, bought in the last half of the year. Hmm. Way off. Hmm. Like, you know, double digit percentages. Wow. Okay. So there's less targets going in the air. Now that might not be all sporting clay related. There's lots of small trap clubs and stuff like that in parts of the country where people actually didn't have any ammo or there's people reload and they didn't have reloading supplies. So they shot less. But if I use like the, some of the range around like Baltimore, Washington area, they've been on it like a two to three box limit per person now for, for, basically a year yeah really so if you're on a two to three box limit for a year and some days they don't have any ammo um those clubs down there have probably thrown half a million less targets alone between those two clubs because of that so that's where that's really our kicker right now i just talked to a guy who shoots competitively he's been shooting for a long time you know he can afford to do it he just said, "Hey, man, you know, I've I've been shooting maybe once a week now." He goes, "I used to shoot three cases a week, you know." He goes, "But just price of everything's up, and you know, I'm just save you know taking cutting back a little bit." Yeah, 
So he used to be able to buy shells cheap at wherever he could find them, you know, and, you know, we sold shells in bulk a year and year and a half ago. We were selling shells in bulk at our, at our door. When you walked in, if you want to buy 10 cases for $59 a case, you know, right. year and a half. <laughs> so yeah. the cheapest shell we can show you right now is 89. So it's, it's 30 bucks more of a case. And a lot of guys are shooting a case for practice when they're serious you know, it's 30 bucks more just for the ammo, but everything else has went up. Also the target cost white flyer just had a target cost increase because all commodity prices are up. And that's like maybe the third price increase in the last year. So, you know, you're going to see, you're going to see prices go up a little bit more, just like you're seeing prices go up a little bit more in the whole, in the whole uh, rest of the economy with everything. Right. So I think that's our hurdle right now is you know what is that what does that mean for our next what does that mean for our next year you know which we don't necessarily know i think we had a really good wave through covid and still been pretty good but we're getting i think we're at a point where the price price matters you know yeah gotcha so you you think in your heart that it's probably never going to go back to that way again or the prices are up and they're going to stay up forever I mean, I'm a firm believer in, you know, free markets in the economy. So, uh, you know, the, the supply and demand should dictate prices, you know? So sure. if, if there's enough supply, prices are going to come down. It's just for sure. Um, but, but the problem is if the raw materials are high because of inflation of, you know, everything else is, higher you know to produce the shell then the manufacturers are never going to sell it for for you know fifty dollars again until those raw materials come down raw materials come down then somebody's going to want to be somebody's going to have capacity meaning that their machines are sitting there not operating and they're going to lower their prices right and when they lower their prices they're going to start getting sales and somebody else is going to have their their ammo sitting in their warehouse so they're going to lower their prices also, you know, but that doesn't happen until there's enough supply of raw materials that the supply of raw materials goes down at that point, you know, the, from the get down low enough, we've, we're at some downturn in the economy, <laughs> because the prices, the prices of the raw materials aren't going to come down until the, you know, the economy turns direction the economy turns directions a little bit well it's not just ammo i mean go buy a two by four or a hunk of anger, everything you right. know? yeah, yeah. Every. groceries everything if we get enough supply yeah they'll come down but you, you know you're gonna have to have raw materials come down gotcha all right well i want to circle back to a coaching specific question and hopefully uh i'll let you give this some thought i think it was you that said this so don't crucify me if you didn't but i i believe you said uh we were talking one time or you maybe you were talking to a group of people and you said, uh, again, I think it was you, that it's easier to take a person uh, to coach them, somebody that's regularly breaking targets in the 60s range on a tournament, and taking them up to start shooting in the low 80s versus taking someone that's shooting in the 80s and have them shoot in the 90s. Uh, why do you think that is, and what specific challenges must shooters overcome at that level? Uh, so I think the, I think the if the person is – got a little bit of experience and they're shooting in the sixties and they haven't had a ton of coaching. Mm-hmm. Then there's a lot of low hanging fruit, meaning, you know, shots that are easy to add to their card because they simply aren't educated. They aren't educated enough to know when to do what and what decisions to make and how to set up and how to have the right technique and what to practice, how to take their technique that you teach them and go practice it. So there's a, you can get a very quick, learning curve kind of going from the person shot enough shells to be able to handle the gun, et cetera, and be comfortable. It's don't necessarily really know the strategies and techniques that are, that are required to break different targets. So that's pretty easy to teach that person getting them out from that 60 to 80 range. Um, you know, obviously the difficulty level of the course, you know, matters on those numbers, but as a, as a, as a general idea, when you get in that, 80, 85 range, you know, there's a couple things happen. Number one is you got less targets to, you got less targets to, to make up. 
to get to a 90, right? So mm-hmm. you're saying, all right, I got to figure out how to hit 10 more birds or five more birds. You know, five to 10 more birds are going to change my game. I'll be at a different level. Well, you're trying to find five or 10 birds out of 100, right? Right, right, so, right. And those those five or 10 birds aren't necessarily always always disappearing off their scorecard for the same reason. So, you know, they could have missed five to 10 birds that they should have had this today because, you know, the course had a lot of trap and quartering birds and they didn't know how to set up for that correctly. You know, how to get the good hold points and all the things that are important for those shots. So if you fix all that and then it shows up, you know, they miss five birds the next time that they should have, but it, it might not have been for that reason. You know, so you're, you're looking for a small number of targets, but you've got a lot of things that you have to basically, that you have to do at a higher skill level to get those. So really what happens when you change, when you're, when you're, what I always tell to people is what I'm going to teach you as you move up the board, never really changes. I'm not going to teach you as a guy that's shooting 85, really that much different from the guy that's shooting 65 in terms of ideas. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what I need you to be able to do, though, or what, what is required for you to shoot better and better is you have to be able to execute those ideas with a, with a higher level of proficiency and basically be able to do that you have to be able to do that more consistently obviously uh it's like the difference between how long is it going to take you to um sand a piece of wood to where it's you know not going to give you a splinter versus sand a piece of wood so they can finish it as a piece of furniture okay okay yeah gotcha it's it's the same process it just takes more time and refinement. You know, you're, you're more refined, you know? So the, the big ideas, okay. When you get to that point, the big ideas don't, you already know the big ideas, right? You, you've already gotten rid of all the, you've already picked all the low hanging fruit, you know, now you've got to get your ladder and try to get to the top of the tree. It takes more, takes more time to get up there. Okay. It's not, yeah. it's not as easy, you know? So, that's the that's the difference um is that you're 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 trying to strive and push yourself both understanding wise refinement wise and time you know time to get out there and do that and work on that and practice that etc gotcha well as a target setter so you know when when a person goes to a tournament is there a percentage uh, by what I mean by that is, is there a percentage of targets that are set that are specifically geared towards like, you know, double A or master class shooters? Is there a number involved that, cause those, those seem to be the ones that always catch me and Jason up. It's the, it's the weird ones, the ones we haven't seen before, or the ones that, you know, maybe we just don't have a good read on it. Um, uh, as a target setter, when you go into set a course, I mean, what percentage of targets do you really want to push people with? I like to set, you know, this is, you know, this varies from target setter to target setter. Sure. I like to set, I don't like to set a lot of extreme targets. I, I like to set a lot of intermediate targets. I don't set a lot of real easy targets, but I will set a couple of real easy ones generally just to be, be stations that stations or targets that get added right to someone's scorecard, mm-hmm. you know, at any, at any class, you know, the guy in E class should hit these 30 birds you know, because they're pretty basic or these 20 birds because they're pretty basic. And then he's got to hit the rest of the, you know, some percentage out of the next 80 to, to, to feel, feel comfortable with his score. So I don't really think there's any number, et cetera, but you're going to get a few difficult birds when you talk about somebody that you're saying, well, geez, there was a couple of birds that really beat me up. I wonder if they were, they were harder. Well, you know, of course they probably were, um, but from the shooter's perspective, it probably means that it's something that you hadn't seen before or was unique, or you didn't know how to read that bird properly to, to understand what it was, what it was actually doing, you know? So it could be lack of experience, which is definitely part of it for lots of people. It could mm-hmm. be lack of reading the bird and those two kind of go together, right? right. You know, right. So Absolutely. If you're very experienced, you're better at reading the bird. 
you're less experienced. You're not as good at reading the bird. So you kind of get a, you get a double whammy on that one. Right. You know, right. Which can magnify the, you know, somebody missing some shots on a, on a given course on a given day, depending on what they have set up for you. How many times have you seen masterclass guys miss those 30 birds that you set for the E class guys? <laughs> well, they missed some, there's a lot of them that missed some percentage of them. You yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. You, you can't really, you can't really afford to give away those, any of the easy ones, you know, at, at any level, really. Um, Anthony, if you don't mind, and if you don't want to talk about this, we don't have to, but you're shooting internationals. I followed you pretty closely, and you had trouble with a station that I think kind of took you out of contention. There's always a lesson with a mistake, uh, whether it's for ourselves or from somebody else. We find you at the pinnacle of the sport, so can you tell us what happened? Can you tell us what you can learn or what people can learn from that? Yeah, I mean, I had um, I had three stations that weren't very good, to be honest with you. Uh, I had station, uh, there was a left-to-right crosser on the green course. It would have been, I, I guess, station three. Yes. I missed that a couple of times and then missed the Rabu that was with it kind of as a result of the as a result of the missing the crosser uh that was like my that was my second station of the whole tournament uh i got it back together in that course and shot the rest of it okay and then on the yellow course uh my last station was a left to right tower and i uh had a single and i hit the single that i missed five out of six of this left to right tower had a midi and a standard you know so i shot a 65 i think on that course and i missed five on my second to last stand so that would have you know i would have still been in the running um that was that, on, i think that was station 10 wasn't it on the yellow course the big yeah, station 10 yeah. and station 10 on the orange had a had a left <laughs> right tower and i missed yeah. four or five there too wow man um so the one on yellow is probably a combination between uh, I looked at it. I was fairly confident. And then we had a giant backup and we had this giant backup. I was talking and talking to somebody and actually talking to somebody about something business related. And, uh, you know, and the next thing I know we were up and I was the first shooter and I wasn't as prepared as I should have been for the station, you know? So I can't, I can't rule that out as part of, as part of my problem. Yeah. Um, and then the one on orange was a similar, it was a left to right, but you know, now it's two days later and I got a left to right tower again. And, you know, so now it's partly in my head, you know, I was just doubting myself a little bit, but, uh, I did a little bit of shooting last couple of weeks. I shot two times and I think on some of my left to right, somewhere along the line, I was getting, getting a little bit out of out of balance and out of just having my stance or my rotation of my moving my body out, out of whack a little bit. And I'm not, not convinced that that what is not part of the problem, you know? So I shot some left to right towers last week or 10 days ago and I shot them fine, you know, but I just kind of went through it. Like what could have went wrong there? Right. And uh, I definitely think it could have been lack of lack of planning, you know? So, an overconfidence to start turns into a plan that's the, a plan that is uh, a little bit vague because I looked at the birds and, and knew I could hit them and then started talking whatever and wasn't quite paying attention because I was in the middle of a conversation and then all of a sudden we're up. Right. So, you know, kind of, started with an overconfidence that could have turned into actual lack of planning. Uh, and I think that's definitely part of it. And then, uh, you know, maybe a little bit with my body and my rotation, just kind of feel like I was, as I would swing left, you know, I feel like a left to right shot is harder for most right-handed shooters for their body. Okay. Like moving their, you know, people will dip the right shoulder and stuff like that, you know? So, I feel like as I swung left to right, I potentially wasn't moving my body as a, as a whole. Okay. That I was using my upper body maybe a little too much. Right. Uh, 
could have could have got me offline or something like that like drop my right shoulder as i as i swing left to right not using my body enough that that could have been that could have been part of it gotcha. from well, what i felt when i did a little practice you know for us mere mortals <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we talk a lot about confidence and and how that plays a big factor you know self image do you think, and this is a question I just developed by something you just said was overconfidence. Do you think there's a lot of mistakes made by guys at the very top of the game because of overconfidence? I don't think there's a lot of mistakes, but I think that there's a few, um, I think that there is a few misses that the person would say, man, I missed a real easy one type of thing. I should have never missed that, that type of shot. Yeah. I think there's a few, you know, a few like that. If somebody is, you know, even if they're really on their game, et cetera, because things are going so well that they just let up for a second. They let up, for a, they let up a little too much when they, when they needed to keep, keep kind of doing the same thing. So I wouldn't say that there's a lot of mistakes, but there's probably a few here and there. Everybody's missed an easy one that they meant. And I should have never missed that. I, you know, I, did, I just didn't look at the bird or I shot it too fast or didn't take enough time or something like that, you know, so right. not a lot of mistakes, but some. Yeah. Well, I think we're all guilty of that to some degree or another. I mean, uh, even me and Jason, you know, you look at a, a particular target. It's like, man, I broke that a thousand times. Right. And you don't give it the due respect that it needs. Right. I mean, it's really hard to kind of stay in that zone. Or the planning. Yeah, the planning station after st- you look at it and you don't really take it as seriously as you should. And right. that's that's usually you gotta do the, the same thing from start. Go do the same thing from start to finish, from your plan all the way through into your routine, regardless the difficulty level of the bird. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, well, I was going to ask you, Anthony. Uh, you want to talk about the squad changes, Jason? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's some rumblings uh, about the squad changes for the final day of the nationals. Um, if we understand correctly, you're a big proponent of this. Can you explain what all that would entail? Um, the, the, all the details, you know, we talked about a little bit at the, uh, at the advisory, uh, council meeting and delegates meeting that happened at the national championship. Um, so the details are, are going to be very specific and they're going to be made public soon. I'm on the executive council. So the group of, I think there's 13 or maybe 15 of us on there. Uh, the group has kind of went went through some ideas to come up with a a list of uh, how we would get some form of a uh, criteria, so to speak, to select people that is purely based on a criteria. And no, I think this guy's a good shooter. I think he's a great shooter. Um, so that way, it doesn't. There's no favoritism, et cetera. And coming up with an idea to put those people together at the national championship for fairness. Um, so it'll be public. It's going to get released out uh, and all the details will be there. So I'm not going to get into any details of talking about this and that because it's not it's not really public yet okay. in terms of what exactly all those details are. But something is definitely coming. I think it'll be interesting. It was uh, kind of an idea that I threw out and then the council uh adopted it to say all right let's let's uh let's do something to let's let's act on this right you know take it from an idea that's been there on the table for different councils for many years for a long time and it's kind of just never went anywhere so is this i mean i know you can't give details but this is kind of like a super squad final day is that kind of like what you're talking Uh, about the whole it would be the whole championship be the whole yep Wow. Um, that's, let me ask this. This is something that I've kind of grumbled about here and there. And, and, um, well, I'd like to hear your take on it. Any other sport has a point series, you know, with our sport, you show up, you shoot better on those four days than anybody else. And you're the national champion, you know, any other sport has a point series, you know, it's based on, how you shot at the regionals, how you shot the U.S. Open, on and on and on. Do you think that's something that our sport should lean towards? Do you think that's something we need is a point series? Or do you uh, think I mean, it's we have a lot. We have a right now. I mean, there's a lot of different. There's a lot of different point series 
races and stuff that the NSCA has. We have the All-American team, which is just raw points for based upon as many wins as you can get, regardless of how many competitions you shoot. Right. Uh, so that's one points point system. There's a point system for the for the team USA's sporting efitas teams, which take into account all the big regional US Opens nationals that give us kind of a ranking at the end of the year of how everybody did on those shoots. And then the championship tour has a points system, which is also different that picks the tour champion, which is all the regionals, the US Open national championship. So we have enough different point systems that you can look at and recognize, you know, the all American team is the guy who got the most points, regardless of how much participation. So if he participates a lot, he's more likely to get it. Then you got the teams then you got the championship tour. So there's a lot of points out there, points races out there, et cetera. Um, the national championship, you know, if you look at most sports, they have, they have some title that, that is, that is picked, you know, in one championship. Right. right. So, uh, you can, you can lead the league in a lot of sports, but that doesn't mean you're going to or whatever discipline, but that doesn't mean your team's going to win the world series. If you're, you know, you, you might, you might lose even though you had a better record going into it. Right. Gotcha. Uh, one more quick question, Anthony, and I'm going to let Jason get to the rapid-fire questions. Um, and this is just a personal opinion of yours. Re, you know, we've gotten away from Calcutta's, okay? But Jason and I went to the AFS Invitational, and we actually got to participate in the first Calcutta that we've ever done uh, because we've only been in the sport since 2017. It was a lot of fun, very oh, entertaining. Uh, everybody was laughing and joking and having a good time about it. Why do you think the sport's gotten away from Calcutta's, and uh, do you think we're missing out on a lot of fun and a lot of good time by not having them? I mean, I don't necessarily think we've gotten away from it. I mean, I've been shooting uh, competition, shot my first competition in 1995. I've seen very few Calcutta's ever, uh, except for something like on some makeup breaks here and there. So I don't think we ever really had any following of a Calcutta, et cetera. I mean, in, in one scenario in, in a lot of States, it's illegal. Uh, okay. if you actually, if you actually look into it, um, now are they coming to look for some guys, you know, making some bets on a make or break? Probably not, okay. <laughs> All right. but, but nonetheless, in a lot of States, it's, it's not legal. Um, some state laws are written actually to where options are not even legal. Wow. I didn't know that. So, I mean, I think that, yeah, it's fun. It's entertaining, et cetera. Um, but you know, I'm not sure exactly the, I'm not sure exactly the place that it has and, and what do we do with it? I mean, I think someone could I think someone could start an online you wouldn't have to even do it at a tournament. Someone could do it every time that there's a major tournament. Sure. Someone could have an online, you go on there and place wagers, and there'd probably be plenty of betting going on. And, uh, some some guy listening easy to this enough is, to do. Yeah. Some guy listening to this is going to make thousands of dollars off an app somewhere. Right. But, um, <laughs> Anthony, we do this thing called rapid-fire questions. We do with all the shooters, and uh, I'm sure you've heard it. You want to do it with us real quick? Sure. All right, so first question is your gun. Beretta DT-11, 32-inch barrels. Uh, ported or unported? Ported. Um, choke or fixed choke? Briley, uh, Briley custom chokes. Do you have a go-to constriction or do you change pretty often? Uh, 20 thousandths or skeet. Wow. Uh, custom stock? Yes. Okay. Uh, vest or shell bag? Uh, vest, uh, brand Castellani and glasses, Pila, uh, hearing protection, foam plugs. Um, what shells do you run? I use, uh, Winchester double A's one ounce, 1290 shoot, uh, both seven halves and eights. Oh, do you really? Really? So you yep. switch between the two. Awesome. Is there any criteria why you switch between seven and a half and eights? Is it particular targets or? Um, in feet I shoot all seven and a halves just to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. 
And in sporting, I shoot majority eights and I shoot seven and a halves on something just pretty far, edgy, long rabbit. Just, you know, I'll shoot a lot of eights in practice just to be comfortable with what I can shoot. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be uncomfortable in almost any any tournament, any range, whether it's feet tests or sporting, shooting all eights. So um, I, I think that you got a few more pellets or a lot more pellets, uh, you know, it's just a trade-off. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I, that's all about all I got, Jason. You got anything else you I, want to ask I, I just, I'm hoping he keeps talking. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, uh, any of your sponsors you want to give a shout-out to or thank? Yeah. Uh, all my sponsors, I'm, I'm a Beretta, Winchester, Pila, Jim Greenwood Custom Stocks, uh, Castellani, Ultimate Shooting Accessories, Whitefire, Laporte. Uh, I think that's everybody. Anthony, Riley. If, Riley. If, if somebody wants to try and get on your, and it's, it's about playing like craps, but if somebody wants to try and get on for lessons, um, what's your website? Uh, tell them how they can find you. Yeah, the best thing you can do, my, my email address is right on my website. It's anthony at clayshootinginstruction.com. So anthony at clayshootinginstruction.com or go on my website, clayshootinginstruction.com. Send me an email. Um, super responsive to emails. I'll message you right away and say, hey, I've got your name down. Um, send you some dates as I'm working on them or when they open or, uh, you know, People often say, "Man, I couldn't. Get, I tried to get a lesson with you. I couldn't get one." I go, "I can. I'll always book you. You just sometimes you got to wait, you know." So, right. um, if you're calling saying you want to come next month, then you're you're probably not going to get in. Is there any big shoots coming up at Eminem, Anthony? You want to talk about? Uh, we got the big seafood blast in April. Uh, that's that's a big one, and then we've got some of our yearly shoots that we have. But the the biggest one we we'll have this year is the big seafood blast in Beretta Cup, and that's in April. And April. And you're on wind score or score chaser? We're on wind score. You're on wind score. Okay, cool. Yeah, Jason and I are definitely going to have to make it up to that one day. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be there before you because I'm going to go take a lesson. So Okay. Well, I, it, Anthony doesn't know it yet. Not but. unless I get there first. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anthony, thank you very much, man. I know how busy you are, and we really appreciate the time. Um, is there any closing thoughts, anything you want to add? No, man, I'm good. It's good, good being on with you guys, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it, Anthony. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Have a good evening, man. Take care. All right, take care. Bye-bye. All right, man. That was definitely a smackdown from hell. I mean, that was just great. I love hearing Anthony. I could sit there and listen to him all day. Like brain meltdown. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. But we, we now have to move on to a couple segments coming your way, and then we'll wrap up here shortly. All right, on the phone with us is Chris. McAfee, Chris, we talked to you once before on a bear pelt segment. How how you been, man? Doing good, man. Doing good. Well, uh, trying to stay stay warm here in Texas, which hadn't been difficult this year. Yeah, I'm jealous. We're up here. <laughs> we're up here in the frozen conundrum of Ohio. So right. But uh, hey, Chris, for those that didn't catch you on the bear pelt segment, remind everybody again where you're from and uh, what class you shoot. Yeah, so Chris McAfee, I'm. Um, just outside of Dallas, Texas, a little city called Roy City, Texas, about 30 miles east of uh, Dallas. I've been in master class since 2018. Awesome. So we're talking about Odo Pro Technologies here. Um, you, I think you said, have uh, one of Grace's older sets, one of her first sets. Is that correct? Yes, the battery-operated the battery operated set. Um, I've had them since 2019, I believe, is when I ordered those. Gotcha. And you came from Foam Twisties or – yeah, they just the regular molded foam um, earplugs. Okay. I'm not sure which ones you call them. They, everybody makes some different shoots or wherever you go to. Gotcha. Well, well, Chris, what made you jump to an electronic ear over just the standard molded or foam earplugs? Well, there, there's several things. I mean, the first thing was obviously my hearing. Um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of hunting and different shooting over the years and probably didn't do the best that I could with my hearing. And then meeting Grace, I met Grace at the – regional championship in 2019 south central regional at providence hill and the fact that she was a doctor and had a great conversation with her was not ready to make the decision yet on which set i wanted but i did go ahead and get my molds done which if anybody's listening to this if you do catch grace somewhere you don't want to spend the money right then at least have her do your molds and you can always order later 
but I just wanted a higher quality product. I wanted to be able to to sit in the in the behind of a a um, station, have a conversation with one of my squad mates that I see with all the time. We're talking about targets or whatever, and I'm not yelling from person to person. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to, and you got, you're interrupting the person in the front of you. But so if you've got two people to have those, those earplugs that are electronic, you can have a normal conversation and not interrupt anyone. Yeah. That's a great um, thing. The, the comfortability is, is unbelievable. I, I wear these things half the time. I forget that I've got them in. Um, so I'll be in the clubhouse and realize, Oh, heck I got my earplugs still in. And one of the big advantages that I use them for, I mean, obviously you have volume control on this. You can turn them off if you don't want the sound, if you want to, go to, to dead or whatever, but I use them a lot, especially when we have blind traps. Um, I'm, I'm into the, the whole move on the flash. If I can't see that trap, that's, a, that's kind of an issue for me, mm-hmm. but if I can hear it, I know it's com- where, when it's coming. So when I turn my earplug all the way up, if I've got a trap sitting off to my right, that's blind, I can turn that earplug up and I know when it goes off, if there's any kind of delay or anything, I'm not moving before the target leaves the machine. Yeah, that's a, I know that, when it left the machine. That, that's a good thought there. I never really actually thought yeah, about I, that. I've picked up on that since we've gotten ours is, you know, I, I was really worried and I, and I told Grace this, I was really worried about picking up too much noise, but you learn to love it because now you can hear that trap go off. Mm-hmm. And like he said, a blind trap, you know, when it's coming now. Absolutely. And, and, and no matter what earplugs you wear, you cannot drown out the noise. You've got to get that built into your pre-shot, post-shot routines that you're going to hear things. Um, and I think as you get used to these and wearing electronic earplugs, you're you're still hearing the same things you heard before. It may not be as quiet as loud, maybe a little louder than what it is, but you still have that noise. You still have to get through that mentally, regardless of what earplugs. You can't drown out all the noise. Right. No matter what. Exactly. So what would you say is your over, I mean, I know you've touched on a lot of things. I mean, if you had to pick one favorite feature on those ears, what would it be? It, it would be the ability to control the volume, um, to be able to control what, what, what I hear, what I don't hear. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest feature. And then, you know, as far as grace goes as a whole, uh, the whole Oda pro line, you know, she has the ability to make decisions on what the best product is. I mean, she has a doctorate in audiology. You can't beat that when it comes to someone that's doing your earplugs. I agree. I mean, she in, in the service you get, I'll, I'll use this as an example. This just happened about a month and a half ago um, here at our club. We have a clubhouse that has a cement floor, you know, this painted cement floors. I took my earplug out, just done it a million times, and dropped it straight on the ground and shattered it. Oh, man. Yeah, bad feeling, but it happens. I literally sent Grace a text while I was sitting there at the table, uh, turning my cards in. And within five minutes, she said, I'll have you a shipping label on Monday. Send me the shipping label. I will print it out, send it over to send it back to the, to the factory. And by Wednesday, I have my earplug back. Wow. You can't get that kind of service. I didn't know. I didn't That's talk to incredible. anybody in customer service. <laughs> that, I talked to Grace and Grace alone and it was handled. That was amazing. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Man. Yes, for sure. Well, definitely speaks well on Grace. She definitely knows her stuff. Like you said, being an audiologist and all that, it's great to hear that she has that kind of customer service too. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's how she separates her, I mean, separates herself from anyone else. It, I mean, first of all, she has the knowledge because she's got a doctorate in this, but also she's a very good people person and very highly regarded in the customer service arena. So you're not going to beat that. It's just like having a concierge service for your hearing devices. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything you would say to someone that's maybe on the fence, you know, man, these things are expensive and I've been getting by for years with my phone twisties or whatever. What would you say to someone that's on the fence? They really want to try them. They just don't know if they want to spend the money. What, what What's your thoughts on that? Look, there, there's there's a lot of things in this game that are expensive. Um, and I think yeah. we all agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. at this case, at this point, you, you can buy a set of these for 10 cases of shells. Um but, you know, if you're going to invest in something, invest in your health. Right. Um, I'm not saying that, that ditch your gun is not very important. But at some point, if you keep doing this, and we all shoot fifteen to 20,000 rounds a year, and that's a lot on your on your ears. Yes. It, just, just make the investment of $1,500. I mean, if you look at that in the big scheme of things, and then 20 years down the road, when you're not having to wear hearing aids all the time, make the investment. That, yep. That's the biggest thing I would say. I agree. That's good advice. That's good advice. Well, Chris, thank you. 
for coming on with us again and spending a few minutes. We really appreciate this. Um, I, I think you really brought out a lot of great points about Grace and the Odo Pro Company. Um, we uh, we look forward to seeing you out there on the battlefield, if you will. Yeah, I look forward to meeting you guys in person. Yeah, for sure. We'll be around. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll, <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, I appreciate what you guys are doing, too, with the podcast. This is great. Well, thank thank you. you. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Well, hey, bud, go get them. Go practice some more. And uh, don't forget, take somebody new shooting, Chris. Sounds good. Thank you, guys. All right. See you, bud. See you, Chris. See you, guys. Jason Rambo, was that not an honor and a privilege to have Anthony on by himself to give us knowledge? Beyond knowledge. Well, beyond knowledge. I mean, experience. This is like Obi-Wan Kenobi in sporting class. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he's laying the Jedi smack down Uh, on us. That's what he was doing. Right. That guy's great. I love Anthony. He's a a fantastic shooter. Yes, absolutely. He's not only a fantastic shooter, he's a super cool guy, too. Yeah, and he knows his stuff. I mean, he's been in the sport a long time. uh, He's been shooting since he was a, a younger guy, and he's just, he's picked up and learned so much along the way. Yes, but listen, let's not discredit the coaches that we have involved with this show. No, not at all. Not I at mean, all. I mean, we're talking Brad Kidd, Corey Cruz, Kevin DeMichael, Chad Roberts. And these guys, too, in their own way, are, are experts in the subject matter. They've all had different experiences, and they all have valid opinions and information to share with everybody. Yeah. I mean, John so, Woolley, he's a legend in the sport. Yeah. David Rodolovich. You guys uh, uh, take advantage. Get those questions in. Ask them questions, and we'll get one of these guys to answer them for you. Absolutely. In the meantime, thank you very much to Bearpel, Atlas Traps, Odo Pro, Negrini, Rhino Chokes, RE Ranger, Game Boy US, KO Ammo, and White Flyer. Thank you very much for supporting us. Right. And don't forget to visit our YouTube page. Keep those questions coming in. Take somebody shooting, go to a tournament, uh, introduce new people to the sport. Yes. And until next week, we will see you back here on the Dead Pair Podcast. <laughs>